0: the 95th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Jessica jorgensen Bocher as part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholars series.
1: My dissertation was looking at specifically classes at the institution and how first gen students felt like, and it was mainly of course for composition, how they felt they were being supported with their writing, what writing weaknesses they felt they came in with. And just, I also asked them sometimes general questions about how they felt like they were acclimating to the university life and stuff like that, because I also was just curious about it. And I don't think that really, a lot of that came into my dissertation in the end. A lot of it was just focused on ways we could create really strong communities to support these students in a first year writing course.
0: You'll hear more from Jessica in a bit. But first, I want to share with you that the Big Rhetorical Podcast is seeking nominations for the 2022 Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. It's my favorite time of year. Time to give money to graduate students. Get your nominations in ASAP to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com for the 2022 TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. The due date for applications is May 31st. The goal of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award is to highlight graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, composition, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award comes with a financial prize of $100. To be eligible for the award, nominees must be enrolled in a graduate program in rhetoric, composition, communications, or a related field during the 2021-2022 academic year. Exhibit effective teaching strategies in the rhetoric, composition, and communications classroom. Demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community and in the classroom. Contribute to the development of the field through service to their department, institution, and the larger academic community. Advance critical conversations in the disciplines through the publication of scholarship. This could be refereed, non-refereed, open access, and digital works. Nomination Instructions. To nominate someone for this award, submit an email with your name institutional affiliation, and a 200-word bio and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the 200-word bio how you or your nominee might meet the criteria. Use the subject line Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 31, 2022. Self-nominations are welcome, and previous nominees are encouraged to apply again. For more information about the TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out to The Big Rhetorical Podcast at our email, thebigrhetorical@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or visit our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Today, a talk with Jessica Jorgensen-Burchard as part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholars Series, the series which inspires our award. The Emerging Scholars Series is specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and early career academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. Dr. Jessica Jorgensen Borchardt is an associate professor and director of writing across the curriculum at Pittsburgh State University. She teaches classes on technical and professional communication. Her recent research has focused on concerns of academic motherhood and has appeared in journals like the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics and Survive and Thrive, a Journal of the Medical Humanities. Her current research is focused on how academic mothers use online communities to learn about their children's health, along with how academic mothers use these spaces for social and emotional support. She's a proud mom of twins and a first generation PhD. I hope you enjoy the interview. Who are you? What's your name, your title, and your institution, and your role there? Who are you, and what do you do?
1: I am Jessica Jorgensen-Borkert, and I am an associate professor of English and the director of our Writing Across the Curriculum program at Pittsburgh State University, which is in Kansas. I always have to tell people it's Kansas, um, because I've been at conferences, and people will see Pittsburgh State, and they're like, oh you know you have the big city life and it's like no there's 20k people in this town on a good day you know <laughs> and southeast kansas is definitely not pennsylvania so there's that's a little bit about who i am i professionally anyway um i teach technical writing classes professional writing courses um i just got advanced composition given to me this semester which has been awesome because i haven't gotten to teach composition since probably Gosh, I started my PhD program. So that's been a lot of fun. I really like that. And I'm a mom of twins. They, Elise and Alma are their names. And they are four, they're four and a half right now.
0: But you have a wonderful hands.
1: partner. They have a stay at home dad. So yeah.
0: I bet your hands are full with twins at four. Oh, years yeah. Four.
1: Like I leave this job to go home to my second job with, with my kids. So.
0: I'm not gonna pretend to understand. I don't have kids. So, are you from Kansas originally? No, Southeast Kansas. No, Where are you from originally?
1: Um, so like I didn't even know this place existed until like I got here and stuff. But I'm from Minnesota in okay. North Dakota, so I kind of grew up between you know on the border, kind of in the Minnesota side first, and then later in high school we moved to North Dakota, and then I was on the North Dakota side. You probably hear it when I talk. I don't notice it. But when I moved down here, people were like, where are you from?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I get that all the time. You know, I was in Illinois. I've got a Southern accent. Now I'm in North Carolina and they don't necessarily Southern accent. Uh, more of the Appalachian. So I feel that for sure. So you said the border of Minnesota and North Dakota. So that makes me think of the movie Fargo for some reason. Oh, yes.
1: I went to my PhD program was in Fargo. So, yes. And I grew up near Fargo. So, (laughs) I mean, I will tell you about the accent in that movie. Rural people in Minnesota do kind of talk. Some of them, some of them, have an accent similar to that it's definitely emphasized i mean yeah but i grew up with grandparents and they had like kind of a similar accent but it's also like a way of speaking like if you notice the humor and just the way their syntax is in that that's fairly accurate
0: yeah i love to hear that because i will admit it's one of my favorite movies of all time
1: <laughs> it's a great movie
0: so uh you went to school in fargo what school is in fargo actually let's hang on let's start back Okay. Where did you get your bachelor's degree at? Was that in Fargo as well?
1: I started there, but okay. I was the first generation. I wasn't the first generation college, second gen, but my dad went to back to school like when I was older. So like, <laughs> you know, I was going through, you know, elementary, junior high, those kind of things while well, he was trying to get a degree to get a better job. So, you know, he could support a family kind of thing. And I do not know how he paid for two kids while he was in grad school. Like, To this day, I cannot solve that math problem, but (laughs) he did somehow. And so um, I started there at Fargo at NDSU, but I didn't feel like I fit in because everybody seemed to have like beer money and I, I didn't have anything like that. You know, I didn't even have money to pay for anything, much less beer. Right. So I ended up going to college across uh, the Red River is what separates Fargo at North Dakota in Moorhead, Minnesota. And there was a school, there still is a university there called Minnesota State University Moorhead. And that's where I ended up getting my BA. And I was a creative writing major, um, of all things.
0: <laughs> what led you to creative writing? What, what it was
1: loved, that- I, I love poetry. So when I was in high school, I started publishing poetry. I tried to write a screenplay. Um, that never got published. In fact, that was probably the worst rejection of my life when I tried to write that little play and submit it. Um, So I did a lot of poetry and I published like in small online journals and stuff like that. And so I thought, oh, I, I'll, I didn't start with that. I started with history, but my roommate in college got mad at me one night and she's like, all you do is sit and write. You should just be a creative writing major. It's <laughs> like, I did because I'm like, well, I do spend all this time doing that. I might as well read some good books and write.
0: So you got your bachelor's degree in creative writing. Did you go immediately back for the master's? Did, was there yeah, some it's problem? because it
1: was burnt out. So I was burnt out on the creative writing workshop. I felt like I didn't know what I was going to do with the degree. You know how like some, I've seen this too And other, it doesn't matter what the degree is really. But right. I've seen it with other undergrads too, where it's like they get to that junior or senior year, like I was at, and I'm like, what do I do? Like, you know, what do I, do? what happens now? And I think there was fear too. Like, I just, I just didn't know. And my dad, he's a crop and weed scientist. So he's got this very clear kind of career path when he took his degree. And I didn't have that. Like, and nobody talked about it well. And everybody that I went, all my professors were like, oh, I think you'd be great for grad school, you know, and I'd seen my dad do it. So I thought, well, I'll do this, but I didn't go for creative writing. That's the spoiler alert. (laughs) What did you go for? Um, I went for a master's in just literature. Yeah. Um, because I loved the literature classes near the end. In fact, I, I didn't audit it, but my advisor allowed me to sit in her African American literature class. I didn't need it. Um, I didn't want to take out more student loans just to pay for a class I didn't need. And she was kind enough to, like, you can sit in, you don't have to do the work. You know, you, I mean, I, you should read and participate, but I, I won't expect you to write essays, you know, was what she told me. And so I loved it because it was a class, like a book club, you know, like I got to read and sit in and have these discussions and meet other students. And it was a great experience to do that. And I love literature courses. I had some really good literature professors.
0: I got my master's degree in literature too. And longtime listeners of the podcast know that it's always exciting to me when I, to talk about that shift, right. From master's in literature or even creative writing to PhD in rhetoric, right? Or composition or technical communication. Yeah, totally
1: different world. Totally it, different. It really
0: is. Before we get there, I want to ask you about your master's thesis. All right. What did you write about? Just a couple of sentences because I imagine it was it's been shoved back in the brain since you have a PhD oh, it's now. Shoved
1: back in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> um I read about Franz Kafka's animal fiction. And okay. I tried to argue there's more positive analysis of it. Um, that's really all I think I remember. Um, my most brilliant thing was on his story, Josephine, the singer of the mouse folk. Okay. Um, because I argued that he's trying to model her out of like this opera singer he was obsessed with at the time. And that was one chapter that I tried at one point to get published and they held it in this purgatory, the journal did for like two and a half years or some ridiculous amount of time. Oh. Cause I submitted it at the start of my PhD and I think I finally heard back near the end. That sounds terrible. Um, and it, did, it didn't get published, even though the editor was like, I really liked it.
0: <laughs> it means so much. Thank you, right?
1: <laughs> that helps me on the job market so much. Thank you for your help.
0: <laughs> so you did get your master's degree. And again, did you go right back to the PhD? Was there some no, time No, I,
1: I had a gap year. So what this you- is where the gap year is. Um I, I just could not mentally do more grad school after getting my master's. It was three years. I took an extra year um, because I don't even really know why probably because, you know, thesis stuff. And we had to actually write a pretty massive thesis in that program. It was like, I was told by one person it has to be 75 pages or otherwise it's bad, which as compositionists, we know is a load of crap, Yeah, but that's what I was told. And I'm just like, you know. I have to follow their rules. Anyway, I'm, I went and I just looked for jobs, right? I was looking for, at first, you know, jobs in higher ed, um, lecturers, stuff like that. I ended up working in um, just kind of like a job job at a nursing home as a dietary aid while well, I kind of figured out my stuff because I moved back to Moorhead. My sister needed a roommate. And I was just like, I got no plans. So I did that. Got a job that paid my bills and I got hired at one of those awful online schools right off the bat, which I probably shouldn't even admit to working at, but it's on my CV. So,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, And that was, I, that was an experience. I mean, they gave us the curriculum, but we could teach it however we wanted. We just had to have like an hour of instruction every week that was synchronous Um, And we had to, I remember being told, you have to make those two, um, not discussion board, but two announcements in your class every week. And if you didn't do these things, supposedly somebody came after you um, to do those things. And so for those online sessions, I would just kind of like go through the assignment, go through some writing stuff. And then we would like workshop a piece of writing in the last half hour. And, but then I got a better job. Not too long after, where I was doing online work for the University of Minnesota. So, as teaching online classes, competition for them.
0: And ultimately, all of this led you back to pursue the PhD at North Dakota State University. The title of your dissertation First Generation Pedagogy, a classroom mm-hmm. study of first generation college students in first year writing. I noticed earlier right you kind of like what what is first gen these days you know what I mean like we all have different that was was a struggle
1: in my dissertation
0: yeah certainly
1: there's so so many different ways that people kind of define that and I remember so many committee meetings where we're like we need to make sure we're clear and we stick to this definition and like you know and I shouldn't say so many committee meetings but at the beginning it was like before you do your You know your qualitative work. You know this survey work that you want to do. You need to make sure that you have a very clear definition, and also for the dissertation. Right. So it's been so long. I don't remember how I clearly defined it, but I just said any student whose parents don't have um, a a bachelor's, an undergraduate degree. So they could technically have a, you know, community college tech kind of two-year degree, um, but I was looking mainly at the four-year because there are differences between two-year and four-year colleges, obviously, and I was doing this work within the context of that university 4 year.
0: What's interesting is that even when we were talking a second ago, right, at the beginning of this conversation, like, you struggled to even figure out if, like, you know what I mean, if you were first-gen or not. I have the same struggle, you know. Like, (laughs) my parents don't have degrees, but some, like, Relative who paid 12 bucks for a degree, and like you know, (laughs) the late 18th. Am I still first? Yeah, I'm still first gen, so I really appreciate that. Um, as a first gen student, so tell us a little bit about your dissertation, it can be as much or as little as you want to share. I'm really just interested in what you did, what you found out, and then how that um set a foundation for the research you've done since your PhD program.
1: Okay, well. I will say my research has changed a lot because of things that have happened. But when I did my dissertation, um, my director and I, at first I wanted to do working class students because I'm definitely of a working class background. I have a lot of passion for working class, blue collar people. But he was like, well, there was some fears that maybe students wouldn't know this information about their family, financial realities and stuff like that and so he's like let's try to get something that might be a little bit easier for people to define and data that we could maybe actually get from our university from like admissions and something stuff like that and so we came up with first gen because he knew that I was I was kind of like that and kind of not I mean I definitely was a first gen PhD I mean like I cannot it was such a different world such a different space but So my dissertation was looking at specifically classes at the institution and how first gen students felt like, and it was mainly of course for composition, how they felt they were being supported with their writing, what um, writing weaknesses they felt they came in with. Um, And just, I also asked them sometimes general questions about how they felt like they were acclimating to the university life and stuff like that because I also was just curious about it and I don't think that really a lot of that came into my dissertation in the end a lot of it was just focused on ways we could create really strong communities to support these students in a first year writing course
0: I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about knowing this was you know five or six years ago and a lot has changed, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I wonder, like what I wrote down here as I'm thinking about it, and there may not be a good answer here, but it could be an interesting discussion. Is how does this like how do studies of first gen mm-hmm. college students within the with, through the lens of the pandemic? Like any what do you think about that? How have things changed? How what are things you've noticed? Uh, what we could be directly?
1: So here we actually have a good amount of first gen students. And yeah. I think one of the reasons that I got hired here was because they looked at that dissertation and my discussion of it. And they're like, Oh my God, we need this person. I think that was it. Plus, you know, I teach professional technical writing and that was what they needed. Right. But um, like we have so many, I, so I do this survey in my courses and it's really unofficial, you know, it's like a getting to know you kind of student inventory. And I asked them, If their parents have any higher educational background, like, you know, just kind of an open-ended question, like, you know, ask me, I roughly see about 30 to 40% of the students roughly saying, you know, there's maybe just a community college or, you know, no degree at all. Like my mom doesn't have any higher ed, you know? And so I kind of use that as kind of a metric to understand how many we might have here and I know that admissions here does have that information because I think it's part of the FAFSA if I remember correct or one of the I think it's on the forum actually when they apply for college here mm-hmm. they kind of have to say if they're first gen or not something if like that
0: I heard from someone that you have a book contract <laughs> oh
1: yes, yes I, we got a book contract so this is a crazy story so my like i said my research changed right so my first year here i was planning to reach out about a study supporting first gen students at our university i wanted to be very localized because from my dissertation research i learned the more localized you can be with supporting them the better off you probably are um yes there's wider things you can do like tiffany wang actually has some great research on supporting these students in the university but um, so, I was starting that. I was like reaching out to people, trying to figure out where the data was and all that. And then came back for spring semester and I found out I was pregnant. And so I'm like, well, things are going to change, da da da. And then I went for my first ultrasound and I found out it was twins. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, oh man,
0: <laughs> how do you react yeah, to that? <laughs> I
1: had a, so, here's the killer. So, they put that ultrasound kind of like at the end of my first appointment. Um, and they said, let's just do this really quickly. Cause we're, we're always booked and I know you have to leave in like an hour, but we can get this done really quickly. Right. And so I had to leave in an hour to teach. So I was like, okay, you know, I could do this. And then I find out was twins, and I'm like, how am I going to step into a classroom and be coherent? No and way to, to do that. Day, I don't know what I said. I don't know what I said in class that day. I don't know. I probably actually blurted out I'm pregnant with twins and I don't know what to do or something like <laughs> that, <laughs> but I have no memory of this. Have, it's like, are you raced? It's gone. All I remember is laying down having that ultrasound and having this pause where the nurse, the ultrasound tech is trying to find, she was looking for a third. Can you, she explained that later. She's like, yeah, we've had some triplets. <laughs> so I'm just looking to make sure you don't have a third. That's she said, because she had this look of concern on her face. It looked like to me concern. I was like, maybe there's something wrong. And then she's like, she opened up the ultrasound screen and she's like, well, here's the first one. <laughs> what a way to start, right? And then she's like, and this one is, you know, and she's describing them. And she, of course, baby A, baby B is the language that they use. And yeah then I had to go teach. And I don't remember a thing after that.
0: I imagine so. It's interesting to me, like I said earlier, like, I don't have kids, but it makes sense to me that something, you know, life changing, like motherhood could really shape the direction of your research.
1: It did, because, okay, I'm pre-tenure, obviously, right? And we have a five-year, like in your fifth year, you go up for tenure here, tenure and promotion. And I was like, crap. Like, I was literally like, crap. How do I get these pubs in? Because I need three for my institution, at least, um, and do all this work, this new teaching. Like I'm learning these new courses, I'm developing new courses because for a professional technical writing emphasis, I'm I'm in one other person, or like we're the people who do this. Um, so it was it was crazy, but I was really I, I didn't do this intentionally. I'll be honest, this was not intentional necessarily, but I had written out a response to a CFP for an edited collection. And I spent a lot of time with that my first semester here. So it was really, really good and convincing. And I got, um, an acceptance to write that chapter, that book chapter. And then I had a friend reach out um, near the end of my pregnancy saying that somebody, he edited, edits a journal. And he was like, somebody backed out. Do you have anything that is publishable right now that I can, that I can put into this. And I said, well, I have two pieces. And I mentioned, like, I was trying to turn those dissertation chapters into articles and one became that book chapter and another one became that piece in his, in his journal. So I got two publications by the time the kids were born. So I really only had to worry about one to make that, that three quota mark, you know, like that metric that they have. So I made that it happened. <laughs> and I actually ended up with more than that, but um yeah, that was that was pretty traumatizing overall.
0: I want to get to talking about the book that's under contract. I'll read the title here in a minute. We'll get to that. Yeah. But I wonder, you know, let's open this conversation up about motherhood. If this is the area of research, your focus of study, What is being done in the field to support mothers who are also academics and what could be done more?
1: Well, like the Kairos of this moment is so powerful, you know, with the pandemic, like I cannot like for, for my own personal Kairos and responding to this, it just perfectly aligned. Right. I mean, it's a terrible time, but it also gave me a lot of, a lot of things to do, to be honest, that I probably have little time to do, but they're important to me. So I try to make time for these things. But for supports, so for example, at my institution, we have no paid parental leave. Like it's combined with a sick leave policy, which is really benefits people who've been here a long time because you accumulate so many hours and you cannot even donate to our pool unless. I did the math because I was trying to work with the union to improve the policy when I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did the math. And I think you have to be employed here like six years before you can even start to donate. It's crazy. Um, And that has not changed, though. They were like going to waive that for me, um, which I thought was to be frank. I thought that was bullshit. Um, So we have this really terrible policy there is in the state of Kansas. State employees do get paid leave now, but it's not for the university state employees. Um, Somehow we're left out. I don't know enough about how that shook down to talk more about that, but that's the way it works. I think it's because we have this union in part and they assume that the union will do do something, I guess. But so, so there's no support there. So I actually, I had my kids August 10th. That's when they were born. It was a C-section. I was back at work a week after that Um, because the semester was starting. I didn't have any leave. And I'm the only breadwinner. Well, I shouldn't say breadwinner. I'm the sole money earner for the family. So like I can't not not get paid. And we're both both my partner and I are from working class poor backgrounds. Like it's not like we can call up mom and dad or somebody and ask for some money. Um, We can't do that. So. I just chose to like, well, talk to my chair. I'm like, is there any way I can get any classes just online? Cause I've taught online before. Those were my first big kid jobs. I could do this. She was really pushy. She's like, no, we've already set the schedule, blah, blah, blah. But the per at the time we had a director of professional writing who has since left for another job. And he's his sister had triplets. So he was like, no, we need to give this girl some online classes. So he gave me all my technical professional writing classes, which were two. I always have two every semester. They were on, they were online and I get a course course release for WAC. So I have three, three load really with WAC. And so I just had one class face-to-face. And of course it was a grant writing class, which makes it like, I understood why that should be face-to-face. We were meeting with a client, a nonprofit client, during that time. And so I was able to get my poor postpartum body um, to class for some of those days. But I I moved the first two weeks online because I wanted to get used to taking care of twins. I wanted to recover at least a little bit. Um, So I did meet them that first day of class to explain the situation and to share what was happening. Um, And I've, I was so embarrassed about doing it because it's like exposing all these policies that are not here. <laughs> it's yeah. exposing so much, you know, in my personal life. And really, I was talking to a student years, like a couple of years after that. And she was like, I thought you were completely badass for being in class that day. And I was like, I'm glad you thought that because I did not feel, I did not feel very badass during that. Yeah.
0: That's actually one of the things I was going to ask was like, did you tell them? Did you like, And how do you do that?
1: I had to say why we were doing this, because this is pre-COVID. You know, I think doing this now would be like, oh, yeah, we're having the first two weeks online, like everybody, (laughs) you know,
0: this is normal. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. At the time, it was not normal. And it just it was. But luckily, it was a small class. It was mostly English majors in that class and just generally kind humans, you know, who just were like, yeah, we can give you. We can give you this space. And I kept up on my work. And then we, after that, in that third week, I was back. Though I certainly was not ready. I was back and we were running class.
0: Wow. Wow. Let's talk about the book. You're <laughs> co-editing with Rachel Dwyer, Sarah Trochio, Lisa Hansano, and Jeanette Yen Harvey, titled It Takes a Village academic mothers building online communities and it's under contract
1: yes yes um good news we have it under contract and it's funny we started this before the pandemic and we started this thinking oh we'll get this done and you know a couple a year like we'll be able to get all these submissions and da 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 and so we had our first meeting february 7th
0: 2020 so oh wow
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Right. And so I remember, you know, being all excited. This is like a passion project. Um, It does count toward promotion for me. Edited collections do count. So I'm like, this is something I can use professionally. I was just super happy. Then the pandemic hit and like, all our deadlines that we had self-imposed because we're all, we have all have kids the same age. That's what I was going to ask.
0: Is this a group? uh, Is that how that January 7th meeting like came to be? How did that come to be?
1: Oh, yeah. So we all joined this online social support group on Facebook for academic mothers of 2017 babies. Um, so we were all in the same group. And the group is now private. So if you went to look for it on Facebook, you're not going to find it. And I think we've shut down, you know, people to to join just because we wanted to keep it kind of small. It's about 600 people. And so um, we had met there and somebody had just posted this, like, request, like, should we do a book about online support for academic mothers? Because we're all using this space in that way. And should we kind of get together? And so there were a few that said, yeah, you know, like people were, but we were the ones that really, I guess, stuck around and were able to kind of coherently come up with something for this and write a proposal and do all that work. So that's how we met. Um, And I've been really lucky, I think. I'm working with great people. On that project, it, we all have different skills. We're all c- good communicators about what's going on. It's been a, and they're just generally lovely people. So I'm glad I met them.
0: What are some of the pieces about in that book?
1: Oh, wow. We have some, so we have some per- personal narrative style. And when we first were looking at our submissions and thinking about the book, we're like, what do we do with these? Because we have a lot of qualitative research. We have a lot of, auto-ethnographies and ethnographies and stuff like that, that are really good pieces. But we were like, these personal narratives we felt deserved a space because they were pretty powerful. I don't want to give anything away too much, but um, there's a lot of really great personal stories in here that I think would speak to other um, academic and even professional mothers and even people who are administrators. Because, I mean, these stories really highlight system, systematic failures in and higher ed and supporting caregivers. I don't just mean mothers. I mean, anybody who does any kind of care work um, are included. And so we were really like trying to find space. And so they're almost like interculary kind of chapters in the book, kind of like, you know, you read some really great research and then suddenly you have this personal story, you know? And so we were, I'm so happy we were able to work those in because I'm like, I hate sending a rejection to somebody who wrote about you know, to the death of her spouse and how this group helped her out, you know? <laughs> it seems cold. And like, she wrote about it so eloquently. So I'm really excited about it.
0: I love that like genre bending idea, right? Of yeah, yeah the,
1: as a writing person, I was super excited about it because I'm like, this is actually, we could set this. And I was the one who suggested that in tertulary kind of mode because I'm like, remember Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath? One of the things that I love about that book it's like he has that those story chapters, but then he has these beautifully, almost poetic chapters about the Great Depression that are just very short. I remember reading in high school and thinking, I wish I could write like this. <laughs> it's oh. so moving. <laughs>
0: We all wish we could write like Steinbeck. I think one time I heard that he wrote The Grapes of Wrath in like forty sittings or something like that. How do you that.
1: do that? How do I you can't do even that? that? Article sometimes in forty sittings.
0: <laughs> I see some of these prolific academics too. I'm just like, how, leave. How are you doing this? Like, there's there's too much to do, and you're doing so much. One of the things I noticed when we started this conversation is that you were really excited about teaching advanced composition.
1: I love it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) What are you doing in that class? Are you theming it? What are the assignments like? Stuff like that. Tell us your approach.
1: So it's my first time teaching it, um, as I shared before. And so um, I'm excited because, like, I think it's been taught in very traditional ways, like you would imagine an advanced comp to do. You know, I mean, it goes off of our, if you... Were to investigate my institution's webpage long enough, you'd probably come across what is called the PSU writing rubric. And that's really our assessment tool, but people use it in first year composition. And I chose to use it in this class, but I encourage students, you know, modify it. Like I have contract grading. So I'm like, this'll kind of be like the way I evaluate some of your things. I may use some language from this, Um, but it's good to know these are some things we value. Um, at this institution? Do you want to mod it in any way? And so we talked about it. So it was, it was kind of cool to do that yeah. um, and kind of reframe some of that, that stuff for the class. But um, so I have to teach a rhetorical analysis as part of it. That's part of our assessment for the department. So I'm kind of forced into that, even though i really love to do something a little bit more fun. <laughs> but um, I'm having them also create some videos, some multimodal compositions. Um, and it, the class is primarily for English ed majors. So I'm trying to gear it toward the theme of, like we're talking about contract writing, for mm. example, and reading essays around that. And that's what we're, we're going to do soon. And like first year composition, you know, do we need something like that? How does it fit into a student's education? So I'm bringing in these educational kind of conversations and we're looking at them as examples of writing, but also like how does writing how's writing seen and evaluated in educational settings because they're all teachers they're going to have to do this right. and so it's really cool the conversations we're having so it's been really fun um and I'm really looking forward to the rest of the semester when we get even deeper into some of this stuff and you know talk about how to give good free feedback on writing and stuff like I'm really excited and I just Actually, before we started talking, I just finished giving feedback on their rhetorical analyses. And I had them like choose from things like Charles H. Gambino's This Is America, Taylor Swift's The Man, um, to even Alfie Cohen's essay about grading, you know, as an archaic system. And people chose different things based on their interests and they wrote about it so, so well. I mean, we have there's lots of things that we can comment on, you know, like refining your thesis statement, but I love the way they they talked about these pieces of cultural artifacts.
0: While you were finishing up comments on rhetorical analyses, I was reading a uh, contract grading and peer review by Christina kind Kattop- of, I'm gonna mess this one up. Christina Katopodis and Kathy and Davidson. That's what I was reading right before we chatted.
1: Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I it's uh, in this
0: book, Ungrading. Oh
1: yeah, like I actually have a copy of that too, and I've I've kind of skimmed it, but I haven't read it super closely. I need to read it.
0: Oh, I'm it. in a book club, so that's that's the primary yeah. motivation. I'll be completely honest, but also like, holy crap, um, is this stuff pushing me like in different directions that I really would have never. Had the courage to consider, um if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. um I love this idea of contract grading. I think there's a conversation to be had about how how to do it in first year writing too. How to do it well, I should say.
1: Yeah, and that's that's. I just started doing it last semester, to be honest. Like I'd always thought about it. It was something that I wanted to do, but you know, was having young kids and like you know having these exactly. sports have to teach and assessments that I have to do and stuff because I assess our first year writing I don't have any power over it but I'm the one who assesses it so I don't know how that happened but that's how that happened um so yeah it's it's something that's new and I'm kind of experimenting and tweaking things as I go but it students love it they I've gotten so much positive feedback about how much they like it because I've had multiple students from undergrads to graduate students in our program tell me, you know, it actually takes makes me think about what I'm actually doing, as opposed to what kind of grade or evaluation or feedback am I gonna get from yeah. this? They're like, I'm more, more into what I'm doing because of it.
0: I commend you for taking it on and trying it. I imagine it's a tremendous amount of work and you're doing that and balancing being a parent of two young children. <laughs> like uh, I, I teach a four, four and like the idea of like deconstructing everything is just, it's a lot of work and not it's everyone yeah. it is overwhelming. And I think, you know, this isn't like a, Oh, we shouldn't do this, what well, we should, but we should also acknowledge that not everyone can.
1: Yes, I think it's important to acknowledge not everyone can, because think of non-tenure track people who are teaching in writing programs who really don't have a right year one, that don't have a lot of say over how, yeah. you know, if I were to walk in to teach first year composition here, I have to use that PSU writing route. Like, it's it's one of the things that yeah, I'm asking. Yeah. And that's an important conversation to have, I think, because we do have a lot of privilege as tenure track people.
0: So tell me one interesting thing about your campus or institution.
1: Oh, we are the only school that has the gorilla as a mascot, which actually, as you can, you know, in our society probably has got some, some conversation going around it. Sure. Um, and it's definitely not meant to be racist, obviously, but I guess I was told by somebody at my institution that we were, we had like some business college conference happened here. And I guess there was a communication that went out about, um, because we say, you know, once a gorilla, always a gorilla is one of our, well, what we say as an institution to share, like, I hate this metaphor, but we are family, you know, I don't support, I don't support that. But that's kind of what they do with that. And I think somebody had had headed on their email signature, it was something like that. And this whole conversation about race and what the gorilla, you know, you know what I'm saying, uh, kind of came to be, the person said it almost went viral and made our university look really bad. And if it wasn't for some really smart marketing people to step in, I guess things would, and I didn't know this until I was told it at a meeting and talked, told, I was like, wow, I did not know, but that's one I maybe shouldn't share that as I guess the interesting thing, but that's what people bring up all the time. It's like, we're the only one who has a gorilla as a mascot.
0: Okay. That's interesting. It, it is interesting, right? Interesting doesn't have to necessarily mean like super positive, right? Well, right? I think there's a bunch of folks in Mississippi that would probably have a similar, similar answer for their mascot. Interesting. Well, question. Yeah. And
1: like, so I went to school near University of North Dakota and they had the fighting Sioux for a year, okay. you know? And so, I mean, I've heard these convert. we've all heard these conversations before and man, oh. there was some pushback about changing the fighting Sioux name, you know? And that's its oh, whole other conversation.
0: I've, I, I mentioned what Mississippi, heck, I went to school in Illinois, you know, and that, that that they have this similar name. This is a, this is an interesting conversation too. This has been a wide ranging conversation and I have really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, let me ask you a couple of other questions and then, you know, we'll kind of wind down here. Um, what are some of the things that you like doing in Pittsburgh? Is it Pittsburgh, Kansas? Is that,
1: yes, is that Pittsburgh, what... Kansas? So what's you know, life well, like
0: in Pittsburgh? What do you and your family like doing?
1: Oh my! So you know, I wish I could say something way more interesting because you know, like I said, I had kids really early on. Here, we didn't get to explore a lot of things. But um, one of the things my partner and I love is we both love. My par- partner makes wine, so wine is one of his interests. You know, and there's a great Mine too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I like it too. I came into our relationship a beer lover, and I, I was, I learned new things. Um, but anyway, um, it's called Keltoy. It's spelled K E L T O I. It's a very small little winery, kind of right on like the Missouri Kansas border, like between Pittsburgh and Joplin, Missouri. And it's so good. <laughs> um, I, it's just you walk in, and it's like walking into somebody's living room. Um, and and we love going there, but we can't go there very often. but it is kid friendly. So, you know, as the pandemic further eases, um, as things happen, we're, we plan to take the kids there. and you can have like a little lunch, you know, and it'll be nice. So that's one of the things that we do. He makes wine, and I guess I drink it, right?
0: <laughs> I me up, you'll have to send me a bottle. That sounds great. What are you doing this afternoon? What's the rest of the day hold for you?
1: Oh, the rest of the day, I get to have writing conferences, which I'm excited about. So all of those rhetorical analyses I looked at, I get to talk about them, which oh, yeah. I love. I call them writing therapy to students. It's like, because like, I think we all have that mental health conversations right now where we understand what therapy is. Yes. And it really is like writing therapy. I mean, it's like, so what are you where, you know, how can we reorganize it? How can we make this thesis statement stronger? How are you struggling with this piece? You know, so I'm really excited about that. And then after that, um I go home and I see my kids and because I'm already prepped for a Thursday's class and we're going to have bad weather. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't think it's going to be, you know, university closed, but I said, we're just going to be on Zoom because they're doing a design workshop. So I said, you're going to have to be in a Google doc or something similar the whole time, pretty much. So it makes more sense to do it that way.
0: How do you design your conferences? Do you have them one-on-one or like three to a a small session?
1: Um, I have them one-on-one. And so I allow them to do Zoom or in-person, you know, because being flexible, I think is really important right now. And so I'm going to be hopping between Zoom and in-person, talking to students. And I wish I had more time, like, you know, Like, I I schedule these for about 15 minutes each, but it would be great if, like, I had enough time in my life where I could do 30-minute sessions or something like that and just really be able to get really deeper into the discussion. But mostly I'm just like, these are things we need to do. Let's talk about how we can do them. It'd be great to actually start that work a little bit if I had more time.
0: Oh, don't we all wish we had more time? Not... And you know how we get more time, in my opinion? We lower those class sizes, right?
1: <laughs> well, so we're having a conversation here because we've had enrollment drops. So we're trying to, but the thing is, I guess our first year writing course is all pretty much filled up. Um, So it's like, we can't really, we can't do much there, but we have other, like, I'm not going to get into the politics of the the WAC stuff right now. with writing to learn courses and stuff like that. But there are writing courses. We have like creative writing could, you know, do that. Um, We could actually within my department change the caps on our writing to learn because nobody's going to push back on it here. So that's one place where we could actually do that. But it is a conversation we're having because it would be nice for our grad students and for people, others who teach first year composition to have lower course caps right now they're at 24.
0: Oh, that's the way mine are at too. A little high. We'll get them down. Yeah. We'll get them down. This has been such a great conversation. Um, thank you for joining me. I'll give you the floor for anything else you want to say before we wrap up. Um,
1: Thank you for having me. Like when I reached out to you, I was like, I'm not sure what he's going to think about because I tried to sell you on the academic mother thing. Yeah, no- you know, I mean, it's been such a awful, stressful, confusing time and so there have been conversations about that. so I thought, well maybe I can do that but so I do appreciate you having me and reaching out and be for me being able to talk about like nobody's asked me about my master's thesis since <laughs> since I don't even know. Um, I think one person when I was on the job market asked me about that when I was doing that after my PhD.
0: So you're actually not the first person to come on and talk about um motherhood, academic motherhood on the the podcast. And I'll mention too that I was appreciative that you reached out to me, you know, uh certainly. So I just want to mention that you're not the first person scholar to come on and talk about this. We had Alex Hansen on a couple of years ago. This is an incredibly important topic and, and many scholars are working on it. So thank you for sharing your work with us.
1: Uh, and thank you for allowing me to do that. I really appreciate it. this has been a great conversation. I love, I love how all the different things we were able to talk about in just the span of like less than an hour, actually.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jessica.
1: Thank you, Charles.
0: my interview with with Dr. Bortreau, don't forget to submit your nominations for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award by May 31st. I want to thank everyone who has donated so far to our GoFundMe for the award. If you're able, head over to our Twitter page and check out our pinned tweet and give if you can. We could still use your help I'll be back next week with another new interview on The Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media not-for-profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Cahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, haliwa saponi maherin okanichi band of saponi saponi and Wakamal suin music for the big rhetorical podcast is brought to you by dj lane sepahelix and acrylic bathhouse